this day, May 27, 2015, the citizens of tech gathered to make this momentous recording. By traveling great distances across town and overcoming unfathomable challenges, our calendars, we screw up our courage, scratch our balding pates, and grab our microphones to record this show number seven against the odds so firmly stacked against us. Why? We, like you, are citizens of tech. That's why we do what we must, because we can. And you, fellow citizen, have joined us to do the needful. Let's raise a glass to one another as we discuss the Kerbal Space Program, waterproofing your phone without a case, Scrabble letting down humanity, IPv6's importance to gaming, according to Microsoft, light speed computing, high dynamic range TVs, liquid metal antennas, and more. Let's start by introducing ourselves. I am Ethan Banks, at EC Banks on Twitter. You might know me as the co-host of the Packet Pushers podcast and writer at EthanCBanks.com. With me is non-benevolent dictator Eric Zutphen. Yes, that's right. And you will follow me on Twitter at Zutphen. And you will read my blog at Zutphen.com. And you will enjoy this show. Without further ado, let's carry on. <laughs> and you know who you are out there, by the way. You are intelligent, good-looking, witty, confident, full of the sass and vitality that make every day a shining tribute to the walking beacon of excellence that is you. So let's jump into our first program segment today, talking carefully through our curated stories of the present, and then we'll move into our past and future segments as the show progresses. So starting off with the present, Mr. And you found something called the Kerbal Space Program, where the title says it's not rocket science. Uh, rocket science. Oh wait, yes, it is. That's right. Yeah, it it is rocket science, <laughs> but it's also a game. So this is uh, a game that was recently part of uh, Steam's Greenlight, which is their early access program. Okay. And so what happens is a game is in, you know, alpha or beta or or whatever actual stage of development it's in, but gamers are impatient and they want to play the game they're excited about whether it's done or not. Sure. And so, you know, <laughs> I'm I'm subject to this. I I sign up for beta testing and things like that. And what the early access program with Steam does is it allows people to essentially buy the game ahead of time and invest in the game. So you pay your, you know, $19 or whatever, I think is what I paid for Kerbal Space Program f- five, six months ago. And it's not fully ready yet. And there's tons of patches. So, so, and- so what you're saying is that you pay Steam extra money so that you can do QA development for the game game folks? Basically, yes. <laughs> Let me pay okay. you to find the bugs. Um, Just making sure I'm clear on that. Yeah, Got no, it. that's pretty much exactly what it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, and in many cases, it doesn't work out so hot. In this one, it did. Um, so Kerbal Space Program is a game uh, that this guy just had this idea. He worked at a marketing company, actually, but the company was looking to di- diversify what they did. And so he's like, well, I like, uh, you know, space and astrophysics and all that. I guess he was an armchair astrophysicist uh, and he wanted to design this game. And we mentioned a couple of shows back about the Unity engine. Indie game developers have been able to, you know, get games out the door because of this yep. core that allows them to build games more quickly. And this is built on Unity 4. And in Kerbal Space Program, you have to build a spaceworthy craft, which is capable of flying its crew out into space without killing them. So, so more like a sim then? It's very much a sim. Okay. Except you have these little Kerbals. They're these little green guys that... 
they live on the planet Kerbin. It's basically, it looks like <laughs> Earth, but, you know, uh, they're these little green dudes and they're all named, you know, Jebediah Kerman, Bill Kerman. They're all the same family and they're hilarious. They have reactions and all that. But basically you want to send them up and there are objectives and things to uh, complete missions and you unlock. There's a couple of ways to play it. You can unlock uh, science which is how you play science mode. And as you accrue science, you gain access to a new collection of parts, which you have to assemble to create a functional ship. And each part has its own function that, you know, it, it throws off the balance of, of the ship. And if you don't keep it symmetrical, the thing's going to fly off at an angle and crash, explode, whatever. So you strap these guys in and you get ready for some rocket science and it's actual rocket science. Okay, because I was going to say, wait a minute, we said sim, and this doesn't sound like a sim right now. This actually sounds like little green guys having fun. It's like it's like a space flight simulator. So they built they well they've wrapped fun around the the sim component of it. Yeah, so it's more entertaining. Exactly right. Uh, So it it does have the different game modes. There's career mode where you have to you know fulfill contracts to get money so you can continue to fund your space program. There's science mode where you unlock science to gain access to new parts, Uh, or you can play in sandbox mode, which is you have access to everything and if you just want to do deep space missions and learn how to assemble a a ship or you want to build a space station or a lunar rover or mars rover type thing you can do that Um, but it is a fully fledged physics-based flight simulator as far as you know spacecraft goes it makes sure that uh, everything will fly or crash as it should based on the physics of your your spacecraft you have full control over the staging sequence uh, which allows for complex ships and advanced functionality there are guys there's one guy out there uh, on youtube and if anyone is interested in kerbal space program and wants to learn more about it you can look at um, this guy's youtube channel his name is scott manley he's a scottish uh, rocket scientist and he does videos on okay you want to get to the moon Here's how you do it. And he'll walk you through. Okay, you're going to burn this long. You know, you you control your uh, orbital exits and entries to, you know, slingshot off the gravity of the planet. Mm -hmm. If you're at all interested, take a look look at Scott Manley's Kerbal Space Program channel. The guy's uh, hilarious. He's brilliant. And he's the reason I know how to do anything in the game, basically. So, so Kerbal Space Program is only going to be available on Steam? It is. Uh, no, actually, it's available right from their website as well. It happens to be available on Steam because mm-hmm. they did their early access release on it. Yep, yep. And so, you know, as people bought it in early access, it funded the further development of the game. And it, they just went to 1.0. Um, they, they've made leaps and bounds in the six months that I've been messing around with it. Mm. So, yeah, if anyone's interested in, you know, rocket science and little green men purple space program <laughs> very good <laughs> uh that sounds like fun i uh I, I i've told you this me and games it's just when do i have the time for that i haven't managed to make the time but stuff like that does sound interesting for sure yeah it's it's a lot of fun it mm. it is that one is a time commitment um but the good thing about it is you can stop and come back and resume you know you, your yeah. guys can be in orbit or whatever you can shut down the game come back and they're you know pick right up where you were nice well, all right. I found another story here um, about coating your phone to repel liquids. And so here's why this is interesting to me. I have a life proof case on my getting very old iPhone 4S. The life proof case is a wonderful thing. It cost me 70 bucks. I think it wasn't cheap. You know, the life proof cases are pretty expensive, mm-hmm. but, but because I go out into the wilderness and I hike and I want my phone to be, to be my all in one GPS camera, blah, blah, everything device, I decided I'll just 
spend the extra money in the life proof case and uh and off i go life is good in the woods and uh, my phone is water including waterproof and completely protected the downside of the life proof case is it is a case it is it adds a lot of meat (laughs) to your phone you know it is um big and bulky in your pocket not huge but i mean it it does add a lot and uh and it's kind of ugly you know yeah. apple if you like your the aesthetics of your phone it's, apple makes a pretty phone it's right? not that svelte no yeah. <laughs> you, know, you got this nice slim phone and then you put this big stupid case around it like mm. and so i saw these these uh th- these two companies that can coat your phone to repel liquids and i'm kind of wondering what the the value of them was and what the usefulness was of them was and i dug in so it's two companies liquipel and impervious. Uh, so let's talk about liquipel first. And if you go up to their site, liquipel.com and, uh, and, and look at their treatment, treat my phone. What, what's it really doing? I'm going to read from their website here. Um, this is some of their, some of their marketing material, meet the worry-free way to text with wet hands, listen to music in the rain or check emails while you're relaxing in the bathtub. Liquipel applies a liquid repellent protective coating to your smartphone. So occasional splashes and accidental exposure to liquid won't ruin your day. Okay. So, I mean, off the bat, we kind of know this isn't waterproofing exactly. Yeah. Their, their marketings, uh, they're, they're a little, ambitious with what they're saying there i think it's you know occasional splashes accidental exposure that doesn't sound like i'm checking my emails in my bathtub and oops i dropped my phone <laughs> well so okay so there's more on that okay. I'll, 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 I'll tell you some more that i found out here so first of all let me read from liquipel's site how it works so what what is this process here liquipel is a specialized process that applies liquid repellent substance to electronic devices we place the device in other words, you get to send them your device. Okay. We, we place the device into our proprietary machine, which pumps it down to create a vacuum. Once the vacuum process is complete, we inject our liquipel formulation, which turns from a liquid to a gas as it enters the chamber. In the final step, we introduce plasma, which decomposes the liquid repellent molecules, polymerizing them to themselves. Once the chamber comes back to atmospheric pressure, we then remove your device with no cure time, and the process is complete. In other words... They stick the thing in a tube, they create a vacuum, they pump it full of this magical stuff in gaseous form, it settles <laughs> onto your phone, they re atmosphere uh they put atmosphere back in and it all settles and now it's attached to your phone. Inside and out is the key here. It's not just the surface of your phone on the outside, it's also inside. It's mm. going in because it's in gas form, it's gonna get inside the phone as well, which is uh which is the key. Okay, so that's one way to do this, and I want to talk about the other way to do this. Um, and then I'm going to talk about some of the testing that I saw on YouTube. So if you use Liquipel, you can do that treatment that we described, and then you can add uh, skins as well. Just but you know the normal stick-on kind of thing, which sure. is always hard to get right, and gives you some scratch resistance and uh, a nominal amount of drop resistance, uh, protection from shattering and cracking, that kind of thing. That if you have an iPhone six plus with the skin and you ship your phone off to Liquipel, it'll cost you eighty bucks. They ship it back in a nice tin and with a foam liner and blah blah. Okay, that's cool. Now, what about impervious? So impervious would be invisiblewaterproofing.com. And let's see how they describe their process here. Impervious is an invisible nano spray with molecules 1000 times smaller than a human hair with super hydrophobic properties. When applied externally to your device, impervious protects against spill damage and screen scratching. When fully applied to the outer and inner components of your device, impervious is classified as IPX7. And there's different waterproofing levels here, IP66, 
and so on. IPX7 is one of those kinds of waterproofing classifications. We currently offer, uh, we currently only offer full waterproofing kits for the iPhone 5, 5S, and 6. And when applied, your device can be submerged in a meter of water for up to 30 minutes. Although we do not recommend it. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So, so impervious. Okay. So Liquipel, you ship them your phone. They ship it back. Sure. Impervious. You buy a kit. And if you want to do the full thing inside and outside, it is uh, more complicated. You buy the kit. You have to take your phone apart to apply the kit. And I sat and watched the better part of a 23 minute video that shows you how to take apart your iPhone. Uh, this was for the six plus, I think. And, uh, and apply the waterproofing kit. And this was taking apart lots of teeny tiny components, spraying them with their magical spray and putting them back together. (laughs) And, you know, the whole phone, you got to put your whole phone back together then. And by teeny tiny, I mean, take your, take a phone, any phone you got and look at the bottom of this thing and try to find screws. If you can find them, they're the smallest things you've ever seen. Yeah. Glasses screw size or smaller. Yeah. and, And the video kept saying things like, buff all areas to a clean finish. In other words, you spray this thing down and you got to polish it up to make sure you didn't apply too much and it's going to gunk up the works. So basically, in all the time that it would take to do this, I could just work for five or six hours and afford a new phone. <laughs> it's like, it was brutal. I was like, oh boy, I don't think I want to do it. I mean, to, to me, it was a risk. Am I ever going to get this phone back together right? See, because the, 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 it's so delicate to take it apart, first of all, I mean, I remember the, there's two screws in the bottom you take apart and they give you this suction cup so you can apply the, the screen, screen off, pull yeah. the screen off. And now you've got all these layers. There's battery layers. There's different foil layers. There's processor. There's the antennas uh, and so on. It's a complicated process to, uh, to to actually take your phone apart and put it back together, which I'm not saying you couldn't do it. But- no, but is it something you want to do? Like I, I saw someone post on Twitter the other day, taking apart a an iMac is is a pain. I was like, yeah, it is. I've done it. And getting it back together was a real pain. Yeah. That was an iMac. Yes. A 22-inch screen computer, not a, you know, four and a half inch iPhone. I I have no interest personally in doing that. I mean, this is it's it's cool what they're able to do, but or or what you're able to do, I guess. But my goodness, that's a lot of time investment and potential screw up. But but let's assume you do it. You sure. know, let's assume you do it. You know, what else do they say about their kit? Impervious also says it's a preventative liquid damage solution. It should not be used for taking underwater photos or any other water based activities. In other words, it's it's supposed to prevent accidents. You know, if you drop your phone in a puddle, that kind of thing, it's supposed to help you uh, with those situations. And they also mentioned that applying impervious to the exterior only of your device will not void any warranty. You know, spray with whatever you want. That's fine. It is similar to a screen protector or smartphone case. However, if you apply impervious to the interior of your smartphone, you will void your warranty. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, it sounds really risky to use the impervious solution personally um and i like the liquipel solution better in that sense it stinks to have to send the phone away for a while but you know that seems better now there was a youtube video that i watched where someone had tested this i think it was a liquipel test they had sent it away and came yes it was liquipel because they showed them unboxing the liquipel treated phone in the tin with the foam mm-hmm. case and all that stuff. Sure. And they just went for it. They, they dropped this sucker in like a, 
like a, like a barber shop jar. That's that. So they could uh, they they submerged it, but then they were able to pull it up easily uh, again. So they they have this jar. They put in the phone in the little uh, tray so they could pull it back out again. They fill it up with liquid. They were playing a video at the time. The video was just playing along, kept on going. They pulled it back up. Okay, let's cycle the phone. They shot it off, and it ain't coming back. Yep, and <laughs> it was bad. Uh, and they. Basically, they kind of proved if you fully submerge this thing, it's that's not what this is for. Right. So, but, but, so I, I, I mean, impervious for me is a no. Liquipel is a pretty strong maybe. I'm thinking about it pretty seriously. It, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, it's a pretty compelling idea to be able to just ship it off, have it done, sent back, you know, squared away. Well, the, the thing of it is, like, I'm looking at a 6 Plus because my contract is coming up on my 4S. I'm pretty sure I want to stick with an Apple phone because I'm very heavily in the Apple ecosystem. But I don't want to take the huge 6 Plus, if that's the phone I get, and then stick a bigger case on it. It's like, really? Right. So the Liquipel is pretty appealing because in the wilderness, if you know, the worst case scenario is I would drop it in a stream or a puddle, like a standing puddle. Sure. Taking a picture or something. Uh, yeah, something like that. You know, or I might drop it in snow if it's winter um and that and liquid should be fine for that scenario yep um if i'm picking it up pretty quickly if you know i'm not going to go underwater with it that kind of thing if it rains it's going to protect me against the rain you know or protect the phone against the rain i don't think it's going to protect me it put me in a vacuum <laughs> right and um i i think you know also for people that that aren't in the apple ecosystem there's a slew of android phones out there that already are ip65 or ip68 or ip you know mm. 7 even yes um that you know sony makes some and um there, there, there are several. So if, if you're an Android person, you can just buy a phone that already has this on board. But for Apple people, you know, uh, taking apart my iPhone is not, <laughs> not gonna appealing happen. to me. going to happen. All right, Eric. So I found this other article here about Scrabble letting in a bunch of new words. What did you think of this thing? Uh, yeah, I, I think you summed it up well <laughs> in the intro, letting down humanity or at least the English speaking. Uh, variety of humanity because wow do we really need you know a fresh reason to lose faith in humanity an additional 6500 words include lots as in that's a lots of cheese uh, <laughs> <laughs> i took a sip of coffee at the wrong time yeah wrong time to drink coffee twerking because that needs to be you know on a scrabble board the last thing i want is you know, grandma playing the word twerking on, oh. on the Scrabble board, <laughs> scoring 48 uh, points off it or what a triple word score. Mm. Um, lols, L O L Z, mm -hmm. emoji, and this one is just Radic. It's Radic. Yes. Uh, and also FaceTime, uh, Bezzy. I don't, I don't even know, even what, know that what that is. That is. Uh, sexting, uh, shizzle and <laughs> cake hole as a reference to your face. Shut your cake hole for shizzle. Uh, <laughs> so it, it, what's funny is shizzle would be a, a tough one since there's only one Z in the pile bag anyway. So you'd have to use a blank to make up. The oh other Z. yeah. You'd have to use a, a blank wild. Oh, boy. But to me, Scrabble has always been about proper English words, your command of the English language and your esoteric knowledge of, of rare words and your ability to use them to make killer high point plays in Scrabble. It's a hugely strategic game. You start throwing in all this 
crap, all these terrible words. It just takes some of the magic of Scrabble away from me. Yeah. Yeah. If I'm playing Scrabble, I, I want to play it for exactly what you said. You know, that command of the English language and the vocabulary aspect, not so that I can play lots of twerking lulls uh, <laughs> <laughs> as as three words in succession. I'm I, kind of OK with emoji, I think. Well, that's a thing. Yeah, it's an actual thing. I'm not okay with cake hole. I'm not okay with shizzle. You know, it's just uh. slang should not be in Scrabble. That's my, and that's been a principle of the game. Right. It's yeah. slang. Therefore it's not a valid word. Right. So, I don't know. Right. So, Oh, well, right. A fresh reason to lose faith in humanity. <laughs> so yeah. w- what is this about the usage of Toretto and IPv6 for P peer to peer on windows 10 and Xbox one? You found this. I found this. So there, there's a, there, there's a piece here that was written up on ripe.net by some of the guys from the Xbox team and Microsoft talking about the challenges they're having with peer to peer gaming uh, on the internet going forward. So for, for those anyone that listens to this show, if you're, uh, coming out of the packet pushers world, you would be very familiar with IPv4 versus IPv6 and the slow deployment of IPv6 across the world. 20 years now. And yeah, it's, it, it, we're getting there, right? We're getting yeah. there, but it's taken a while. But w- w- some of what's happening is peer to peer games need to be able to talk directly endpoint to endpoint. So Xbox console to Xbox console, if you will. So we're talking for no, certain functions, no server. Well, there, in there might be a server involved in certain cases, but for certain of the functions like, say, chat, you might be talking direct. Oh, OK. Uh, system gotcha. To system. Yep. And in fact, if you've ever researched how to set up your Xbox Live to work through your firewall, there's a whole bunch of ports that you need to open and so on to facilitate those functions. Gotcha. Because, uh, again, it's not just the game. It's also chat's got a, a, a channel and, and so on. OK. Well, across the IP version four internet, we've been out of space in certain markets for a long time now. And there's been a lot of solutions that have been put in place to make that happen. One of which is NAT, network address translation. Almost all of us are using NAT at home now. You got a home router, you're using NAT. You've got 192.168x.x inside your house probably. And then you're translated to whatever the public IP address that is that your service provider gives you. Okay, cool. Well, carriers have taken NAT to a whole new level with something called carrier grade net cg net which again if you're a packet pushers listener you've heard us talk about cg net in a woeful terms in the past <laughs> not recently but it's come up certainly in the past we talked about cg net what that is is where the address your service provider gives you is not a public ip address it's yet another private address so you inside your network your router translates to some other private address your carrier gives you and they in turn uh, will translate you yet again to something else. And so you've got this multiple layers of NAT here with CG gotcha. NAT. So okay. it's, it's kind of like a regional NAT. A bunch of people in your neighborhood could be hiding behind the same public IP address, IPv4 uh, address. For peer-to-peer gaming, that's terrible. Mm. That breaks applications. Um, not every application works very well when it's translated. And in the uh, the CG NAT scenario, that problem is just is even worse. Okay. Okay. So here's what Microsoft is is writing about here. They're just making the point that hey, we, we really need to push ahead with uh, with IPv6 and uh, and need to make this uh, more serious globally. And, and we do have a global IPv6 internet. Don't get me wrong. Sure, that's that's there. All the tier one and global uh, internet providers do have an IPv6 network. They're interconnected. BGP is connecting. Border gateway protocol, a routing protocol that connects the internet, is connecting all of the IPv6 uh, blocks that are in use today together. That's fine. 
but man, it's getting down to the regional carriers. Like, dude, you and I are on uh, Metrocast Cablevision. Yep. We're up here in the Northeast United States. They do not have any IPv6 yet. In fact, I did a trace route to check uh, what autonomous system in the BGP world we're using. And I checked tcpiputils.com to see if that autonomous system is advertising any IPv6 blocks. And nope. not a one. Yeah. <laughs> nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> and I checked with them a while ago. No IPv6 support yet. Um, and so the, the bottom line here is this is a negative impact to gaming as IPv4 gets more and more natted as it, as it continues to be out of address space and struggling to, uh, to continue on. IPv6 is the answer because there's enough addresses in the IPv6 world to support the world millions of times over. Everybody can have as many of their own IP addresses as they want. Yeah. On multiple devices, even. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Multiple devices. Um, The IPv6 IPv is ready for the Internet of Things, right? All the sensors and whatever else that is going to need to be uniquely addressed in some way. IPv6 is the answer, according to Microsoft. And, and it's not just simple connectivity. I mean, it's other problems, too, that, uh, that Microsoft highlighted in this RIPE article. Um, they talk about the, the first of all, just the, the, what we've been talking about here, the functionality of P2P connectivity decreasing over time. Mm. And uh, Microsoft's worried that IPv4 address scarcity is forcing uh, this whole carrier grade NAT that we were talking about. And again, they're just highlighting the, the, the issue here, which if you're an Xbox user or Xbox Live user, you're going to see this um, where you're stuck behind a strict network. Have you ever seen that? Um, that you check your Xbox Live functionality. It's like, oh, you're stuck behind, you know, strict oh, NAT. And yeah. so therefore okay. you're going to have limited functionality in your game. Um, and again, degraded multiplayer experiences because some things just ain't going to work right. Um, I've dealt with this here at the house because uh, my son is an yep. Xbox user and trying to set up the firewall for him so that he can play well. Uh, the other th- uh, thing here is that Microsoft is finding that... Um, Retail customer premise equipment, meaning your home router that you got sitting on the shelf there, is configured with IPv6 disabled by default. Meaning, even if Metrocast for us turned on IPv6 tomorrow, what we have in our houses is probably not going to know what to do with that because that functionality is disabled by default. Which seems so, foolhardy. Right. Just it leave does. it enabled. <laughs> and if it if it can use it. It, it's DHCP from Metricast anyway. So, and, and, and well, if you it's think not about DHCP it, if you're on IPv6, but if you, do you want the average residential consumer of the internet, just the average home user, to have to configure to IPv6 on their home router around inside their Even router? Even if it's just to configure something by checking a box? No, no, no. You just want it to work. Most of them don't even know how to log into their router. They plug it in and it just works right it's, it's private ip v4 and a dcp on the one side and it's public internet on the other side they plug the cables in the right places and if it works awesome yep. that's all they know you know maybe they can configure just based on what i see in my neighborhood maybe they can configure a unique wi-fi ssid or something but sure. you know beyond that yeah so Microsoft is, again, they're, they're pointing this out. This is a, a potential problem that's going to grow over time that the industry needs to address. Uh, and they've even encountered a small set of reports where IPv6 latency and bandwidth performance are suboptimal compared to IPv4. In other words, hey, we're using IPv6, which is good. 
but the performance isn't as good. Uh, and, and this will come up in the form of reports where people are saying, I can get 1080p resolution with IPv4, but I can go at 720p oh, with IPv6. And because this the has carriers to with, aren't providing the resources. Or, or the server you're hitting in a cloud is yep. that is IPv6 supported is further away from you. So there's higher latency, maybe less bandwidth between you and that server you're trying to hit. Well, there's got to be less density for you know distributed computing in the IPv6 stack anyway, I would think. Uh, apparently you know, it's, fewer, it's a rollout fewer problem. servers that you yeah, know that are actually consuming ipv6 exactly. not that there's any reason that they couldn't be Correct. it just hasn't been done yet yeah it yeah. hasn't been before uh, done yet now yeah, that's the best way to put it so anyway interesting thing if you're into gaming to pay attention to how ipv4's continued usage on the internet is actually hurting gaming that kind of blows but it's <laughs> maybe correct. it'll gain traction finally because of it or no, it should accelerate be one more driver to push things ahead yeah exactly. one more driver so all right moving on here's a here's a fun little thing i just wanted to, to highlight because i like internet services that don't suck sure uh, and this is a music related one called soma fm mm-hmm. so soma fm is truly commercial free streaming of all sorts of music pretty much whatever you're into um it, it, to a point i mean i think it's it's emphasize it would emphasize a lot of the electronic styles ambient and and chill which can be good if you just want to listen to music in the background while you're working um but many many channels to uh to, to listen to is streaming and uh it's an alternative to spotify mm. i found and i think it's better than pandora because it's a lot of stuff you've probably never heard before yeah you get less of the uh, market saturated yes. audio. Yeah. Well, yes. Whatever that might be on a given day. Um, no classical stations. If you're a classical fan on some FM, uh, but they've got just about something from everything else. So it's, it's worth checking out and they live 100% by listener donations. Mm. So uh, they've got an app, which is one way you can support them, but then they've also got, if you donate to them on their site, uh, t-shirts and other tchotchkes, things that you might be interested in. And they've been around for a long time. They really carefully curate the music. It's um, worth checking out as an alternative to whatever you've been listening listening to for music lately cool death watch death watch we've added nothing new nothing new this week but we thought we'd just remember um fax machines fm radio the music streaming service title we still think it's going to die and a popover ads are currently what's on death watch all right all right that about wraps it up for the present section mr satfin do you think yeah i'd say so i think we march forward into into the past march forward into the past march backwards <laughs> Into the past. Let's yeah. March. Yeah. You will March. Uh, non-benevolent dictator says we will March. And so as we look backwards into the past, you can see what I did there in a second. Uh, as you look backwards to the past, I have been interested in glasses, the technology of glasses. In other words, those things you wear on your face so that you can see something. Uh, and I did. Uh, I just dug through once again a wikipedia article which i think has kind of become the format for past we just look at wikipedia and see the research some other person did here's this cool thing someone else researched (laughs) let us tell you about it so so glasses technology is interesting to me because i wear them Mm. Um, i'm not wearing them on my face at the moment i have a very mild form of uh uh, of farsightedness i can't quite see or is that nearsightedness i can't see super far and so i've noticed this like if i'm at a conference and i'm looking at a presentation that's up in front of me i can't see that it's blurry it's just not working out if i'm driving in the car and i'm trying to read road signs yep uh, it's not good either you wear glasses what's your situation 
I can't see things that, that are significantly far away. I don't yep. have the worst vision, but it's bad enough that I, I could pass, you know, the, when you go for your driver's test or your, you know, license renewal right, right. here in the United States, they, they test your vision and one of my eyes is, you know, sufficient and the other is not. So I, I wear them all the time, but yeah, it's, it's stuff that's far away is just too blurry for me. So, Okay, so some quick history here. First century AD, Seneca the Younger notices that letters can be seen uh, magnified more clearly when, uh, or and also seen more clearly when using a globe or a glass filled with water. So this is something any of us have noticed, sure. right? That water has an impact on light and things can look sharper or they can look bigger depending on, uh, on how you're looking at them. That's the first recorded thing that we know about. Mm-hmm. Where, I mean, there, there may have been something earlier, but this is the first thing that we know about. 1900 years ago, an aha moment. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So in uh, now let's move ahead a millennium in the year 1021, a convex lens is noted to do the same thing in Alhazen's book of optics. And that book is what led to the invention of eyeglasses in 13th century Italy. So one other interesting mention, sunglasses, we believe were first used in 12th century in China. Hmm. Uh, I mean, it's, I mean, that's a little different of a technology, right? Sunglasses versus, sure. you know, something that actually changes the the, the bending the of light length and yeah. Um, okay. So then first eyeglasses in Italy about the year 1286. And then by 1301, there were even regulations governing the sale of eyeglasses, oh, wow. so, which kind of tells you it was a pretty significant thing that a lot 700 of years were consuming, ago, uh, these glasses. So then 1352, we move ahead a little bit and uh, we see in a painting by De Modena, a portrait of a cardinal and he's using a set of glasses to read. That, that's a Catholic cardinal, not the bird. Not the bird, correct. Because <laughs> I instantly the... had a mental image of a bird wearing <laughs> glasses. <laughs> a Catholic cardinal reading whatever he was reading. I don't know, the scripture Worm scroll daily. or something, yeah. whatever. <laughs> Um, okay, but we didn't, it doesn't seem like we understood what was really happening, how they worked. It was more like we saw this phenomenon and took advantage of it, but didn't really get it. Um, but the first guy that got it was Johannes Kepler. And in 1604, he publishes a correct explanation of why convex and concave lenses work, what they're actually doing to impact light and, uh, and how it affects focus and so on. All right, so let's move ahead a little bit from Johannes Kepler to Benjamin Franklin. We have the invention of bifocals, and uh, he's got a, some uh, a condition that pushed him ahead into this invention. He's got both hyperopia, which is farsightedness, and presbyopia, which is the inability to focus on objects that are close. And so then bifocals, which is both lenses or two different changes in in focus compacted into one lens. Sure. So you got an upper half and a lower half. And depending on what you're looking at, you pick which half of the lens to look through to see what you need to see. Okay. Moving ahead from Benjamin Franklin in 1825, we have lenses that correct astigmatism, um, which was interesting. I didn't quite understand what astigmatism was. Do you happen to know, Eric? Astigmatism is, is a weird thing. I have a very slight astigmatism and I didn't know this. I've been wearing glasses since I was about 10 years old and I found out that I have a slight astigmatism and I forget which eye at this point, honestly, but, um, just recently, the last it's few your years, eye. it's my middle, eye, my the third eye, yes, it my is. third eye is blind. I can tell. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I switched, um, eye doctors and, and they said, Oh, you have a slight astigmatism. And that's why 
your, you know, no matter how good your prescription has been in, I think it's my left eye, you, you always have a slight bit of blurriness off in your field of vision in mm. a certain area. And I said, Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. So they, they adjusted my prescription to, to correct for the astigmatism. And now I have crystal clear vision, but I spent, you know, 20 years with a slight blur in one area. And so the, here's the way I read astigmatism and tell me if, the, if my definition of this makes sense based on your experience. Um, the way it was described and I understood it, it's blurred. Astigmatism is blurred vision in different planes. And in other words, it could be very clear on the horizontal plane, but not the vertical plane. And it has to do with the curvature of the lens of your eyeball being curved at different rates in different directions. So it might be curved more severely in the horizontal plane and less in the vertical plane, which right. causes this, this difference. Does that sound about right? It sounds how I understand it. Yeah. Mm. It's, it's almost like you have a peak in your lens that is, you know, you're a mountain guy. So, you know, the peak is the, is the pinnacle, but there are different grades getting up to the peak, depending on where on the mountain you go up, mm. you know, it might be really steep in mm -hmm, one place mm -hmm. and more narrow and winding on, on the other. And that's okay. sort of how I understand it. So, so in effect, then your the lens of your eye, we would assume it to be this very regularly shaped thing, but in fact, it may not be right. Astigmatism. Okay. Okay, so, so some other interesting you know, things here about uh, uh, corrective lenses. I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia article here. Um, they had kind of a, a, an interesting paragraph that was a little hard to summarize. There was so much information. Um, corrective information or corrective lenses can be produced in many different shapes from a circular lens called a lens blank. Lens blanks are cut to fit the shape of the frame that will hold them. Frame styles vary and fashion trends change over time. Oh my, yes, they do. <laughs> resulting in a multitude of lens shapes. For lower power lenses, there are few restrictions which allows for many trendy and fashionable shapes. Higher power lenses, meaning your eyes really suck, can cause distortion of peripheral vision and may become thick and heavy if a large lens shape is used. However, if the lens becomes too small, the field of view can be drastically reduced, right? Because you need to have a lens big enough for you to see through. You can't be looking at this sure. tiny little thing. So bifocal, trifocal, and progressive lenses generally require a taller lens shape to leave room for different segments, which makes sense, while preserving an adequate field of view through each segment. Frames with rounded edges are the most efficient for correcting myopic prescriptions with perfectly round frames being the most efficient. Before the advent of eyeglasses as a fashion item when frames were constructed with only functionality in mind virtually all eyeglasses were either round oval or curved octagons which if you look back historically i can't think of the octagon that i've seen that necessarily but i've certainly seen plenty of the round or oval shape oh sure that's, yeah, uh, sort, sort of, of lenses. The, in fact, that's kind of the the stereotype steampunk look, right? Yep. You've got a big round lens for this goggle or eyeglass that you're looking through. Um, it was not until glasses began to be seen as an accessory that different shapes were introduced to be more aesthetically pleasing rather than simply functional. Um, one number that are, uh, that is used to describe lenses and their ability to reflect, refra refract light cleanly is called the Abbey number, A-B-B-E. So of all the properties of a particular lens material, the one that most closely relates to its optical performance is its dispersion, which is specified by the Abbey number. Lower Abbey numbers result in the presence of chromatic aberration. Color fringes above and below to the left or the right of a high contrast object, especially in large lenses and stronger prescriptions. Okay, so I bring up the Abbey number uh, and chromatic aberration as is interesting for eyeglasses because it means 
you can have color bleed in certain places as you mm. look, depending on the nature of the lens and the quality of the lens and the Abbey number that is describing that lens will indicate how much chromatic aberration you're dealing with. This is also interesting in digital photography because you can have chromatic aberration depending on the quality of the CCD that is taking the picture. And if you look at a uh, an image with it's kind of got lousy chromatic aberration, what you see is say it is uh, light piece through a tree canopy of leaves and it's really bright sunlight you will just see a lot of bleed bleed uh, going out over the top of those leaves and stuff which is uh, as my understanding been described as chromatic aberration if you're a photo nerd and i got it wrong email me and let me know and i'll uh, i'll correct it uh the next time we chat on this show okay so the abbey number for a material at a particular refractive index formation is usually specified as its abbey value so the abbey value is one of those things that you get into when we talk about the next uh thing here that i wanted to mention which are the different sorts of materials that are used to make up glass sure yeah okay so top of the list on the wikipedia article most um common historically anyway optical crown glass problem with this it shatters pretty easily it's pretty heavy to be wearing out on your face all day. It still uses specialized circumstances, but uh, it's, you're more likely going to find this in telescopes and cameras, super high quality glass in, uh, in, in telescopes and cameras make a big difference in the quality of the picture you end up with at the end. So it makes sense that it still be used there. Yeah. And when it's not up pressed up against your eyes, it doesn't matter if it shatters. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so crown glass, optical crown glass, and then uh, plastic uh, in parentheses, CR-39. It's safe. It's cheap. It's easy to make. And it's decent optical quality, but it scratches. So yep. you give this to a child, you know, they're going to have scratches all over these glasses. Just, just the way of it. So that's a pretty big disadvantage there. Um, for me, scratches on anything I'm looking through d- diminishes the quality pretty immediately. Absolutely. For example, ski goggles. I bought a pretty pricey pair of ski goggles, um, had to use the facilities in between runs and uh, popped the ski goggles up kind of on the top of my ski helmet and bumped it into the wall while I was doing my business and got a scratch. This was the first day I had them. And so now when I look through these goggles, I've got this one scratch right across the face. And it makes me sad. It's a visual reminder of your sadness. It is. <laughs> I don't like the way you phrase that. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> All right. So, so optical crown glass, plastic CR39, Trivex uh, is another one that I'd never heard of before. It blocks yeah, UV. It resists shattering. It's better optical quality than polycarbonate, which we haven't talked about yet. Um, and so it's popular in rimless frames. And it can be pretty easy to tint. Oh, I wonder, is this is this what they use for those transition lens, maybe? If it's easy to tint, maybe they're they're using that for transition I, lenses. It could be. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, they didn't see any reference to that, but that is, yeah, it sounds possible to me. Um, then polycarbonate, which I think I have a pair of glasses that are polycarbs. So are mine. Uh, they block UV. They resist shattering. However, they do scratch easily, so they're usually coated. And I remember I got a scratch-resistant coating on mine, as well as an anti-reflective coating. Yep. Uh, the downside of the polycarbs, it is, they are bad for chromatic aberration. So their Abbey number is, uh, um, it's lower or higher. (laughs) Which way do the numbers work? (laughs) The lower Abbey numbers are a property of mid and higher index lenses that cannot be avoided. Okay. I don't know. Uh, I did all that on the Abbey number and I've forgotten which direction the number goes. That's terrible. I've done you a disservice. All right. So we got one more after polycarb, which is high index plastics. 
thyroethanes, useful to make thinner lenses, but very high chromatic aberration, strong and shatter resistant, although not quite as good as polycarbs. Okay. And that brings us up to kind of modern, modern day glasses. So an interesting little side trip in the past glasses technology. There's a lot more stuff we could get into. We could talk about contact lenses. We could talk about uh, laser corrected surgeries, which there's different techniques for that yep. um, that have changed over time. I mean, for example, my uh, relative, one of my relatives had this done and it was where they actually cut slices out of your eyeball. Oh, yeah. And then someone else I know had this done and it was a whole different thing where they actually lift the flap of your cornea off and then burn off parts of your eyeball to get it to be to the right. even it out, right? Yeah, to even it out and have it be the right depth to focus light properly, which is a whole different thing. Um, and that technology continues to uh, to advance as well. Well, all right. That was our march into the past. Now, I guess we can march ahead into the future <laughs> and talk about lightspeed computing. What did you find? So this is an article. I found this in a uh, Network World article where the University of Utah's College of Engineering has uh, created something. This is this is actually more than just theory. They've already built this. It's an ultra compact beam splitter on top of a silicon chip that divvies up light waves into separate channels. And it's designed to enable networks and computers computers to transmit data using light instead of electrons. You know, uh, fiber optics are, you know, commonplace at this point in, in networking. But ultimately, you need to get that light converted into electron, you know, electronic signals of binary ones and zeros. And that is uh, that's what really slows down traffic in computing is that conversion, because light, you know, as everyone I'm sure is aware, is the fastest thing that we know of uh, beyond some folding space or something. exotic particle. Yeah. You know, quarks across Many many miles are there faster than the speed of light. Right, with quantum right, right. entanglement quantum state and, and that's yeah. yeah okay. Um, but other than that, physically speaking, light is the fastest thing that we know of, and it's the fastest thing we can use to transmit information. So converting the light into that electronic signal is where you get your major slowdown. So the vision is ultimately to do everything with light, not just transmitting the information, but actually. The computation as well would be done with light instead of electrons. Um, and potentially this could enhance speeds and reduce power consumption drastically. One of the. Okay. Uh, what does this do with silicon? Because silicon is basically a series of, of transistors that are getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, which implies the gating of electrons. So this, does this imply a whole new compute kind of a chip? Yeah. That's the idea here. And this thing is, uh, it's 2.4 micrometers across, so millionths of a meter. Mm. So it's it's 2.4 micrometers square is is the silicon bit on it. So you would have many of these essentially in in tandem in series um, working together ostensibly, as far as I understand it. Um, there's a there's a a paper that they've released, and we can link to it in the show notes for anyone oh that God. that is okay more intelligent than I on on these things. Well, isn't the current die size for silicon like twenty two? nanometers 20, right now? 22 is the standard yeah yeah um, so the, we're getting the, to the point where we can't go much smaller than that so that's because of the, transistor sizes right yes so yes. The, the lithography uh process exists for smaller stuff but it's the transistor size that is the limiting mm. factor um for practical uses so 
this uh, this beam splitter polarizes the light into input and output wavelengths uh, and can be fabricated into a single lithography step. Uh, the polarization, you know, talking about lenses with polarized lenses and things, it allows light to travel through certain paths of of the glass or, you know, substance. And it allows for two possible streams to allow binary transmission. Uh, Mm. So you have a TE and a TM, I think are the, are the actual uh, terms for it. But harnessing this for computation would enable the previously mentioned light speed computing. It's still a few years off for actual, you know, use. They're saying they think within three years, it can start to be, uh, employed for for actual computation so it's in it's a it was a very interesting article and it like i said it it's still in a way theory at this point because making it practical to use is one thing but on the other hand they've already used the lithography and made this thing as a proof of concept so it's uh it's an interesting interesting development well, it's kind of going after the problem of we can't make the silicon dyes any you know, work any smaller scale, which I think I don't know if we talked about it on this show. If we if it was just something I read, but uh, but there's different ways that they're you know, trying to deal with that problem. This looks like yet another way. If we can't make the silicon scale any further um, with current technology. What are the other ways we can advance computing? Quantum computing's been been a thing. Uh, uh, this is basically what did you call it? Speed of light computing? Yeah, light speed computing. This would be another thing that is just rethinking the whole compute model. Yeah, because Moore's law is winding down, as far as we know, because of the the scaling, physical limitation. We're right. down to the atomic level now. And so this this reminds me of you know uh, Henry Ford said. Someone said, why didn't you just make what people wanted? He said, well, if I made what people wanted, they would have asked for a faster horse. (laughs) So this is almost, you know, turning expectation on its head and saying, well, we can do this a different way. Mm. Makes sense to me. Uh, I get it. What will be interesting is which of these technologies makes the most sense. What can be manufactured? What can be made to be reliable? What can be uh, you know done at scale? What of these sorts of new processors? Uh, what are the implications of that for the rest of computing? Right. Do we all have to rewrite our applications now? Will they even execute on such a CPU? Yeah. Is uh, it going to be ARM? You know, can you write well, ARM code or yeah. x86 code or? Or is it just going to be an abstraction layer that's going to allow us to run our old code on a new CPU like this? And if so, will that abstraction layer allow us to be efficient and uh, run at speed and, you know, and so on? I'm sure that's, yeah, it's going to be more interesting when we actually settle on a new architecture. Yeah, I feel like we're on the cusp of the future Mm. and we're all sort of going, what does this actually mean? Mm. All right. Two more quick stories in the future here. One is about high dynamic range TV. Um, here's the thing. We 3D was a flop, right? So yep. we, we've got high definition. That's been great. Everyone's bought there at least 720 and probably 1080p sets. Now you can get 1080p sets out of a box of Cracker Jacks. It's not it's not a thing. Um, kind of a standard technology that's there. What's the next thing that's going to drive people to buy new TVs? What the industry is worried about. They tried 3D. No one cared. <laughs> now we're moving on to ultra high 
high definition, which is the 4K sets, essentially. Um, okay, so within 4K, we got some big adoption problems there because we don't have a way, at least within the U.S. market, we don't have a way to broadcast that much signal. Right. A lot more pixels, a lot more uh, data coming down the line to make that pretty picture. Um, and so that's a, a thing. So the, it's the content problem, right? Um, how am I going to consume 4k content is king? Yep. If, uh, if no one can get it to me, um, yeah, so that, that's a one question mark, but even moving beyond that, um, another technology has come up there, this high dynamic range TV. So that is 4k. And we're not talking just about more pixels, but better pixels. Okay, so I've got more of them on the screen. That gives me higher resolution. We all know what more pixels does for us because we're all uh, look at our screens every day. We get like retina displays from Apple. We kind of understand what that's all about. But what if we could make the pixels themselves better? And so what high high dynamic range is all about is increasing the brightest brights and the darkest darks across the color scale so that you get a much more lifelike, what your eye is able to consume kind of experience in the picture. More nuance to the colors and very much. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so HDR is it's, it's, it's 4k with pixels that are much more realistic uh, in, uh, in what they are displaying. And this is um, brightness is measured in nits, which was something new to me. But NITS is the is the measurement, and most current TVs have a peak brightness of about 400 nits, according to this article. Um, the HDR equipped TVs by uh, by the brands that have put these out here max out anywhere from 700 to a thousand nits. So 80, 80 percent more to you're talking a lot 225 percent more, much more brightness yeah. of, available to you there. Much more brightness available. Uh, problems with this technology with HDR. There's no standard yet. Samsung's got something called Peak Illuminator Ultimate. LG calls this technology ultra luminance. Panasonic calls it dynamic ra- dynamic range remaster. Sony calls it a couple of different things, either extended dynamic range or extended dynamic range pro. And then Dolby's got a technology they call Dolby Vision, which Vizio, Sharp, and TCL are all using. Uh, so, you know, if you're an early adopter, you know, buyer beware, just know what you're getting yourself into. It's like buying HD DVD versus Blu-ray, Blu-ray yeah. or the Betamax, Betamax yeah, versus yeah, VHS. All yeah. that's, it's the same problem. The same problem. Although there is a UHD alliance is hard at work. The article states developing a stronger definition of what qualifies as ultra HD, including HDR requirements. So a standard might be coming out maybe by the end of 2015. That can you know, only be a good wait thing. And see. Yeah. Let's wait and see a side issue about 4k that kind of scares me is uh if you're a cord cutter yeah like i am well we like, talked about this a little bit last last time i got a bandwidth cap yeah you know 350 gig is my bandwidth cap right uh, how am i going to cram it, 4k worth of signal down it, the pipe and you're already hitting that with 1080p right just just with kids that are in the house and myself doing some streaming i'm definitely exceeding 350 gig you know in a month not being terribly aggressive viewers it's just kind of you know youtube will throw high def at you yeah uh, it's pretty easy to chew that up what's it going to be like in the 4k world i do not know <laughs> i do yeah. not know as you as you increase those resolutions the bandwidth skyrockets it takes so much more bandwidth to pump that much resolution 
All right. One more story for the future, which is liquid metal antennas. So what is this all about? Um, liquid metal, exactly what you think. It is It is metal that is liquefied in a way, and it is excited by electrical charge. Um, the use cases for this are in mobile devices. Um, so a liquid metal antenna, they, scientists are claiming that, that what they've been working with so far, twice as powerful and more flexible than the typical antenna you get in your mobile device. Uh, liquid metal antennas could be applied to help you with the death grip problem <laughs> that uh, that some mobile phone devices encounter when held by the bottom and all of a sudden they've got no network connection, you know, where you basically, basically you screwed with the antenna signal without meaning to because you've been because of the way you're holding on to your phone. Get your meat paws um, off the antenna. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, the liquid metal antenna could also trim down the size of mobile devices, which makes sense if you can package the liquid metal antenna any way you want because it's it's in a fluid state yeah if it's and I, in I, a little res- thin reservoir through the whole back of the phone or something then it gives you different packaging options you can make a smaller mobile device uh internet of things that pro- that makes sense that you could use them there because again packaging if you get a sensor that you want to keep small but you need to have a you know a decent antenna in it that's got good range so that your sensor's not falling out of range all the time because it's got a craptastic antenna in it well good application there and then another thing is is um, the need for wider bandwidths, um, which has to do with the kind of signaling you're getting off of the cell tower and what, you know, 3G versus 4G LTE, and then emerging technologies are using more bandwidths to get you the throughput. Mm. Uh, and so you need different antennas to be able to pull in the different ranges that sure. are coming off the tower. Okay. So uh, wh- how does it work? It's just voltage um, that can change the shape of the liquid metal. The material expands with positive voltage, contracts with negative voltage, and um and this is this is useful because it gives you the ability to tune over a range of at least two times greater than switch than systems that are using uh electronic switches so it's one of those things to keep keep your eye out for that uh, that's coming in the future to a phone near you very probably well i think that about wraps it up what do you think eric i think so well all right Everyone that's listening to Citizens of Tech, let us know what you think of the show. We would really like your feedback. We got a couple of early comments that we're going to read here that have been encouraging. Yeah. After show two, Matthew wrote, I've been slowly becoming disillusioned by podcasts. The same stuff dumbed down, recycled for the lowest common denominator and scaring people away by trying to appeal to a wider audience. This is exactly what I've been waiting for. This is fantastic. A wild tangent about rail systems that was both fun and accurate, shamelessly nerdy. And I love it. Quite honestly, now my favorite podcast. And after only two shows, well done, chaps. And yes, we're working right on show. This is show seven. We got uh, show eight is being planned. Uh, Paulo wrote uh, a week or so ago. Love the show. Please keep up the awesome job. The past section always brings back lots of memories, and that is my favorite part of the show. So we're getting good feedback from you guys. We love more feedback. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, and we'll try to uh, to adjust to suit to taste. And you can do that by tweeting to us at Citizens of Tech. Let us know what you like or what you don't. Uh, we would appreciate it if you would tell other people about the show. There's about 4,700 of you in the audience right now just looking at our download numbers. That's that's a heck of a good start. And uh, But if you tell other people that it's out there um, on the Packet Pushers community show feed, we would really appreciate that. Uh, we're still incubating it there in this channel, and we're planning to break it out into its own channel soon, probably, um, since you, the feedback that we've been getting has been positive. And uh, with any luck, we will be back next week. Indeed. Have a great week, everyone. Bye.